since the beginning of the church established by our Lord Jesus Christ, there have been, following the apostles and their death, theologians who arose, and some that we call the church fathers, and they studied the scriptures, and they studied the Bible, and then they would teach the people in the churches. They would teach, or they would write about who God is with serious points of theology. I can remember when I was studying church history in the uh, seminary I attended, and one of the early church fathers that sort of captured my attention was a man by the name of Origen, Origen of Alexandria. He uh, lived from 185 to uh, 254 after uh, our Lord, and he was a prolific writer. I seem to remember reading that uh, as he awoke in the morning, there would be scribes around his bed. And as soon as he woke, he would start giving words of wisdom and theology, and he would begin to teach, and they would write down everything that he said. And the saying came from that, who can read all that Origen wrote? Now, it's not that everything he wrote was accurate. He, he was wrong in some places, but I just seem to remember that one of the early church fathers just wrote and wrote and wrote and taught and taught and taught. But they were trying to bring to the early church the teachings of God, the teachings of Christ, and they were engaged from the very beginning in writing, debating, talking about God and about Jesus, who He was and what He did, laying out theology for the people. And part of the way from the very beginning that they began to describe God as He reveals Himself in the Scriptures, that is how we know that God is God, they would see Him as He is revealed and they would talk about His attributes. The attributes of God. And they would lay out, and I have several volumes from some men that deal with nothing more than the attributes of God, going into them in depth, into what they are and how they are manifested. And they show us that God is God. And so when we speak of His attributes, we're speaking of those things which are unique to Him as God. Yes, we do know that uh, there are attributes of God in all of us, but when we talk about the attributes of God from the Bible, they are those that show us that He is God. And today, we're going to touch on a few of these as they relate to Jesus. Does the Bible show that Jesus is God by Jesus having the attributes of God? It is an important question, and it fits right in to our study on the fundamentals of forgiveness, since, as we have seen, we are all sinners, and our sin is against God. 
So only God can forgive sin. And yet Jesus came and said to many, Your sins are forgiven. What gave him the right to do that? How could Jesus tell men, Your sins are forgiven? And that's where we are looking today, having seen God's alacrity or Christ's alacrity to forgive, that is his willingness to forgive, we are now looking at Christ's authority to forgive. What gives him the authority to forgive sins? And we began by seeing from Scripture that as the Messiah, he was promised to be God. We saw from Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 that the, child, the Messiah was to be a child, God with us. That in chapter 9 of Isaiah, He would be mighty God, everlasting God. And we see these fulfilled in Christ, showing that He is divine, showing that He is God. Today, I want to see the New Testament account showing us that Jesus is proven to be God as the attributes of God are attributed to Him. I ask you to please turn with me first to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. Now I want you kids to understand, when we talk about the attributes of God, what we're saying are things that make God, God. When we think about God, what is He like? That's what we're talking about when we mention the attributes of God. Things that are unique to Him. And again, all of us have some attributes of God because we're created in His image. These are called communicable attributes. That is, they've been communicated or transferred to us in our creation in His image. God is a God of love. You are capable of love. God is a God of wisdom. You are capable of knowledge and wisdom. God is a God who can communicate. So he can tell us about himself and his love. And you are able to communicate. That's why your moms and your dads teach you to read at an early age. Primarily so you can read the Bible and learn about God. Learn about who He is. But as God is a God who communicates, you can communicate. But there are things about God that are far above and far beyond what we are like. So when we speak about power, yes, men may have power and strength, countries may have power, but only God is omnipotent, all-powerful. Almighty God. We may strive to live lives of holiness, striving to live in accordance with the Scriptures, but only God is completely holy, majestic in His holiness. And again, there are things like that, that we may say that we have wisdom, but only God is all-wise completely truthful and trustworthy. God alone is unique in so many ways. And we're just going to touch on a few of them today. One of them is seen here in this text. 
If you're at Exodus, I ask you to look at one of the great verses of the Scripture, Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Now you'll notice the gods is a small g. All the pagan gods. Who is like you among the pagan gods, O Jehovah, O Yahweh? Who is like you, God? And what does he use to describe what God alone is like? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? I want to talk a little bit this morning about the holiness of God. God alone is perfectly holy, without spot, without sin. But holiness goes beyond that conception. Holiness means to be separate. The Hebrew word is kadosh, and it's to be separate from everyone else. Sacred, set apart, uniquely holy. And in this text, the writer says, majestic in holiness. Adar, it means noble, glorious. He is noble and glorious in His holiness. Totally different from you or I. We sin. We struggle, but God is completely pure, completely spotless, majestic, radiant, glorious in holiness. Now before we go, look at the rest of the verse. Awesome in praises, working wonders. Keep those in mind. But right now, he is majestic in his holiness. Look over to 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel. And go to chapter 6. Going to be looking at a lot of passages today. I apologize if some of you... Well, I don't really apologize, but... I want you to see with your own eyeballs what is said of God so that when we come into the New Testament and see that it is said of Jesus, you will know who He is. And here in 1 Samuel chapter 6, look down to verse 20. The men of Bethshemus said, Who is able to stand before the Lord this Holy God. God is holy. Look at Isaiah chapter 6. The first of those passages I promised that we would get to in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Follow with me as I read from verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty, and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple seraphim stood before him above him 
each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Don't we see that in the book of Revelation? That's why we refer to him as the thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The earth is full of his glory. This is the God of the Bible. The thrice holy God. He is called by angels, by saints, by all creation, holy. There is no question that the God of the Bible is holy and that praise is due to Him for His holiness. Now, take your Bibles and turn into the New Testament to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. John chapter 8, as we see now, the attribute of holiness attributed to our Lord Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? Which one of you convicts me of sin? What is Jesus saying? He is sinless. He is holy. Now, I'm sorry to do this, but turn back. Turn back at this time to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark. Chapter 1. And here... I want you to see that creation knows that Jesus is holy. Mark chapter 1, look at verse 23. Just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come? To destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. Even the demons knew that He was indeed the Holy One of God. Now, take your Bibles and look at Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. And if you would look down to verse 24. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he, that is Jesus, is able to save forever or to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he, again, that's Jesus, always live to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, 
and exalted above the heavens. He's talking about Jesus. And he says of Jesus that he is holy, completely innocent, undefiled, no sin. And notice, separate. Remember, one of the main definitions of the word holy is to be separate, separated, holy. And so in the New Testament, just quickly, just briefly, we find the attribute of the holiness of God attributed to the Son, Jesus. The attribute of holiness saying that Jesus is holy. Jesus is holy. Jesus is holy. Even as God the Father is holy. I cannot take the time to look at several other passages. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter shows Jesus to be sinless. Jesus to therefore be holy. So in the New Testament, the holiness of God is attributed to Jesus. This is one way we know that Jesus is divine. Last week I mentioned to you some of the cults and their thinking that they do not believe that Jesus is divine. Once again we have here shown that the attributes of God the Father are attributed to God the Son showing that He is divine. Only God is completely holy. And Jesus was completely holy. Just read your Gospels and you will see that that is the case. Read your epistles. Read the New Testament. It is clear, it is evident, it is given that Jesus is holy God. We believe Him to be divine. This is the curse of our day. That men do not know Him. Men do not revere Him. Men are not impacted by the fact that Jesus is holy God. Just this coming week in this country, men will bow their knees to another man whom they call your holiness. It's blasphemy. Only God is holy and His Son, Jesus Christ, as divine, is holy with Him. Not some Pope! Not some pastor! Not some potentate! Not some prophet! Only the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is holy and God alone. But you know what? It's not just seen in the irreverence and the lack of understanding of the holiness of God by pagan religions in the Church of Rome, but we find it in so many so-called evangelical churches in our day. That the holiness of God, the awe of who He is, is seemingly forgotten as they come to church in irreverence, they do not have the awe 
for who He is as holy, holy, holy God. Seldom are men taught or shown that we are but sinful men before a holy God. This, my friends, is the whole point of salvation. You cannot go to be with God if you are a sinner because He is holy. And if you are not as holy as He is, you will never be with Him through eternity. You must be holy to be with God. And the church today seems to have lost the concept of the awesome, majestic holiness of God. Do you not realize, my dear Christian friend, that every bit of the holiness of God is imputed to you by Christ? That you become as holy as Jesus, not in the actual working out of your life, but in the eyes of God as He looks upon you, He sees the holiness of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is what Christ has done for us. But that's next week. This week we see that He has the authority to forgive sins because He is holy God. Turn in your Bibles next to Psalm 111. As here now we begin to see next the works of God displayed in Christ. Psalm 111. Look at verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Amen? That's worship, folks. Praise and glory to our holy God with all the saints around with one heart giving Him the praise that He is worthy of. Look, He says, Great are the works of the Lord. Great are the works of Jehovah. They are studied by all who delight in them. You studying in the works of God? Do you delight in the God of the Bible? Think about, ponder, study all that He has done. All His works. Splendid and majestic is His work. Now I know that you guys go to work. You work at your jobs. You create things. You make things. You teach things. You do things. We're talking about something much bigger than that. We're talking about the God who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, including you. Majestic are the works of God. He is all-powerful, almighty in 
his works. Splendid and majestic. In other words, his works show his glory. That's why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 speaks about natural revelation making men without excuse. Look around you and see the heavens and the earth and all that God has created and you are without excuse to go on in your sinful life because you see his majesty, his glory, his wisdom, his power in creation, in his works. And so this is what we have here, that the psalmist is saying, Splendid and majestic are his works, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear him. You eat? It's from God. It's from God. He provides. The works of his hands are truth and justice. Amazing. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and righteousness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Because of the works. The works of God are great. The works of God are mighty. The works of God show that he is the true God. Now, John chapter 4. John's Gospel, chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you that we have already seen from John chapter 1 that Jesus was indeed involved in creation. He was with God in the beginning. And he was there at creation. So already we have seen that he is the creator God. But here in chapter 4, look what he says in verse 34. John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The work of God is the work of the Son. And we see in the Gospel of John where it says, greater works than these you shall do. What greater works was Jesus talking about? The great work that Jesus brought is the redemption of man. And the great work that we do is proclaiming the Gospel and seeing men who are dead in their sin raised to new life. The work of God is transforming dead men to living men. And Jesus came to do the work of the Father. He came to be about His work. Look at chapter 10. John chapter 10. Jesus was going about doing many mighty works, and the Jews didn't like it. They were upset with Him. Because he says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered and said, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered, 
for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. See, they got it. They got it. Jesus was claiming to be God. I and the Father are one, and I do the works of the Father. They knew what he was saying. He was making himself out to be God because he was doing the works of the Father because he even said, I and the Father are one. Now look back to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14. Remember I pointed out in Psalm 111 that the psalmist attributed to God providing food, feeding. What's happening here? All the people are following after Jesus. They're coming to him. The disciples in the evening in verse 15 came to him and said, the place is desolate and the hour is already late. Send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said, why do that? You feed them. What? He said, we can't do that. We only have five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Verse 19, ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish. Looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds until all were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over, 12 baskets full. Where'd that food come from? God. God. This is a creation miracle. He created the food. And so we have the work of God being done by the Son. We can, we can show the other passages as well, but I ask you to look back a few pages to chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. You remember this account. Verse 23, he got into the boat with the disciples and they followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. You know, they still have really fierce storms like this on the Lake of Galilee. Really severe Storms. I understand that it's like a, a mountainous region and every once in a while the, the, uh, the wind will rush in. It's like it creates almost like a wind tunnel. And it brings these fierce storms that even the most experienced fishermen or sailors like these men are just terrorized by it. And it happens today. Once in a while, even with modern boats. But this storm came in. Jesus is asleep. And they came to him and woke him saying, Save us, Lord. We are perishing. They were afraid for the storm. They feared the storm. Well, what happens? He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. Who can do that? And that's exactly what the disciples said. They were amazed. What kind of man is this? 
that even the winds and the sea obey Him. What kind of man is this? The God-man. The works of God done by the Son. They were afraid because of the storm. And I dare say they were more afraid when Jesus stopped it. They had the fear of the Son of God, which is the right response to God. The right response to His Son. Not this cavalier, flippant attitude that many in our day have. They had a right fear of God. I want to look at one more here. Look at John chapter 11. John chapter 11, and you will immediately recognize that not only did He feed the multitudes, control the wind and the waves and the storm, but He controlled life and death. As Lazarus is dead and in the grave, Jesus comes and He tells them to remove the, the stone Jesus says, remove the stone in verse 39. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Now, I know that Elijah and Elisha both raised boys from the dead, that the Apostle Paul raised one in the book of Acts, Dorcas, from the dead. This is different. Dead for days. In the warm Galilean climate, you would have been decomposing. Stench. That's why his sister said that. But Jesus, as you know in this text, cries forth, Lazarus, come forth! And the dead man was raised to life. Who can do that? God. Even with Elijah and Elisha and Paul, it was the hand of God. And here, greatly manifested that Jesus has the power over life and death. Your life! Your death. Do you acknowledge the works of Christ as being the works of God? Then you must acknowledge Christ as the Son of God and divine. Because the attributes of God are attributed to Him. I, I still say, why don't these cults get this? They're blind. But do you see it? Do you acknowledge the works of Christ? Then you must bow before Him and pay homage to Him as the true God. Jesus is the Almighty, the All-Powerful, the Omnipotent God. We bow before Him as God. I have two more, quickly. The next one is that the glory of God is attributed to Christ. Go to that passage in Isaiah which we read. Isaiah chapter 42. 
Isaiah chapter 42. Look at verse 8 again. I am the Lord. That is my name. I am who I am. That's how he revealed himself to Moses. Remember the burning bush? I am who I am. That's Yahweh, Jehovah. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. God and God alone is worthy of all glory. He says in verse 5, He's the one who created the heavens and stretched them out. He's the one who called them in righteousness to make them a light, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring prisoners from the dungeon. He is mighty God. And because of who He is, all glory is due to Him and only to Him. He alone is worthy of glory for all of the mighty works that He has done. There is none like Him. He alone is God, even as we read in the text. He is in the other texts that we have seen. He alone is God. No one is like Him. There's no small g God that is anything like our God. And therefore, all glory belongs to Him. Oh, that men could understand the glory of God and how God is worthy of our worship. And that God, the all-glorious, almighty, all-holy God, is the one that we come to today to worship. We seek to bring the glory that He is worthy of before Him in worship. Oh, that men could understand the exalted, the mighty, the holy God and then give glory to His name. Now, although God Himself says right here, that only He can rightly be given glory. Look in your New Testament at John chapter 12. This is an amazing passage. Amazing. John chapter 12. And we see that the Son is given glory by the Father. Look down to verse 27. This is Jesus. And he says, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the people, the crowd of the people who stood and heard it were saying that it was thunder. Others were saying an angel has spoken, but it was God. God the Father spoke. And what did he say? 
The same God who in Isaiah said, I shall not give my glory to another, here gives it to His Son. Showing that His Son has to be worthy of the glory of God and therefore has to be God. That's what's going on. The Father is giving glory to the Son. He glorifies His Son. He glorifies Jesus. Similarly, look at chapter 17. John 17. We just uh, begin this at verse 1. Jesus spoke these things and lifting His eyes to heaven said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. You know, when we come to worship, our desire is to glorify the Son that we may glorify the Father. This is what Jesus prays. Even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given Him, He may have eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. I glorified You on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. How can that be? With the glory which I had with you before the world was. Here's eternal Jesus speaking about the fact that He had glory with God the Father even before He came to the earth. He is God! Glorious God. That is who our Savior is. He is glorified God in the flesh. One more text here. Hebrews chapter 1. I know we looked at this last week, but I want you to see what He says in the text as we focus now on the glory of Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of His glory. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of the Father. Last week we talked about the fact that He's the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. But here He is the radiance of His glory. This word radiance, apagasma in the Greek, means to reflect the brightness. Shining forth the light. And so Jesus perfectly shines forth the majestic glory of God. Who can do that? The Pope? Are you kidding me? Only Jesus. Because only Jesus is the God-man. Jesus, our Savior, has manifested the glory of the Father in Himself, even shown a little on the Mount of Transfiguration, shown a little of His glory, the attribute of glory, which God said He would give to no other, 
No pagan God, no false God is given to Jesus because He is God. He is God. No Pope, no pastor, no mere man is worthy of glory. Only Jesus. This man who will ride around in this Pope mobile is robbing God of His glory. Taking to Himself the glory which is due only to God. How dare He! Our God is God. That man is lost and of the devil. Here we have our Savior shown to be God as He takes the glory of God upon Himself. And so we say with the hymn writer, Philip Bliss, Hallelujah. What a Savior. Hallelujah. It's why we worship Him. It's why we bring praise to Him. Because He is glorious, holy God, doing the works of God among men. Now, one more, one more, and quick. If you would, back to Isaiah once again. And this time, Isaiah 44. As we see Jesus proven to be the divine God by the name of God given to him. And I can't even take the time to go through this, but he says here that he is the first and the last. God is referred to here as the first and the last. Here in Isaiah 44, look at verse 6. We see God refer to Himself, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. I am the first and the the last. What he is saying is that he is the beginning and the end. He is the cause of all things and the end of all things. The beginning and the end. All things in nature, in providence, in you, are from God and by God. He is the first and the last. As one has said, in reconciliation, in justification, in salvation, all are by the hand of God. He is the first and the last. Now, real quick, Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. See what Jesus says. Verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is Jesus. The Alpha and Omega. They are the first letter in the Greek alphabet and the last letter in the Greek alphabet. They are shown here on your Trinity hymnal. The Alpha and Omega. The first and the last. And so Jesus even as He is given the great name, I Am, is also shown to be the first and the last. 
This is the God that we worship. This is the Son that we worship. He is the cause of all things. He is the end of all things. He is the first and the last. The true God. Our Savior Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive your sins because He is divine God. He was promised to be God as Messiah and it's fulfilled in Christ. He is shown to be God as the attributes of God are attributed to Him. You can have all confidence in knowing that your Savior Jesus Christ is divine. He is God. And we are to worship Him as such. Every week, I pray that as we come to this service of worship, that we would have these things in our minds. That we are coming before a God who is holy, holy, holy. That we are coming before a God who has performed mighty works even in our day. That we come before a God who is worthy and only He is worthy of glory. But that we would give Him glory because He's our God. And that we come before one whose name is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, men should be bowing. This is our God. This is our Savior. And this is why He has the authority to forgive sins. Because He's God. The God-man. Christ Jesus. You know, people, if He was not God, then we would still be in our sins. If Jesus was not divine God, who paid our sin debt, which is what we're going to begin to see next week. Next week, we're going to look not only at the authority, but we're going to look at His activity to forgive sins. If He did not do that work as God, we'd still be lost. So it's important that you have in your hearts and in your minds that your Savior, Jesus, is shown in the Bible to be divine God. No matter what these cults say, no matter what these false religions say, Jesus is divine God. Or your Bible is nothing but lies. But it isn't. It's truth. They're the liars. Your Bibles are right. Jesus is God. This is a very, very brief view. Very brief look at the divinity of Christ, but I hope it will solidify in your hearts and in your minds the divinity of our Savior. So we know now going forth that what He did to forgive our sins, He did as God incarnate. Amen? Let's pray.